As 2021 stretches out ahead, the unique set of challenges posed for governments and their institutions by the past year remain. But when the current tides of COVID-19 eventually subside, which nations will come out on top? Whose leaders are looking beyond the current crisis to build a progressive and business-smart future for citizens, investors, and visitors alike? In our view, there is one European nation leading by example, the very birthplace of democracy, Greece. Due to austerity and populist politics, the country has not always been able to make the most of its assets beyond its burgeoning tourism sector. That's now changing, and leading the charge on the nation's rebrand is Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. As the last year drew to a close, Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck and I boarded a plane to Athens for a rather special sit-down with Mr. Mitsotakis at the Maximus Mansion. From rediscovering the strategic importance of the Eastern Mediterranean to a new sense of national confidence, we get to the heart of why Greece is back on the map. I'm Tyler Brule, and along with Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck, this is The Chiefs on Monocle 24. Prime Minister, first, thank you very much for inviting us to the mansion at this very interesting time that we're in. I wanted to maybe start by looking back at the time that you came into office. And I don't want to make it a, a question about what you inherited, but maybe bring us up to speed as to the, the type of republic you became, of course, the keeper of roughly a year and a half ago. Well, we came into power in uh, July 2019 in circumstances which are very different from the current context. Essentially, what happened in Greece uh, during those elections was uh, a resounding defeat of the particular brand of populism that flourished in Greece between 2015 and 2019. Those were the years when the country was essentially run by a government where the majority was held by a leftist radical party elected on a populist platform that had actually teamed up with a small fringe party of the extreme right. And those were, I think, difficult days for Greece. They were difficult days on the economic front. We almost went, as you probably remember, we almost went um, bankrupt in July 2015, where our banks closed and uh, the government at the time was forced to sign you know, a third unnecessary program. So we imposed unnecessary hardship on our people. Growth lagged way behind the Eurozone average between 2015 and 2019. That was also a time when I think our institutions were challenged. But, uh, you know, this is a birthplace of democracy after all. And uh, the Greek people voted freely in July and elected to power a government that is moderate, focuses a lot on uh, strengthening institutions, focuses a lot on strengthening transparency. And uh, one of the arguments I made at the time was to make sure that our democracy comes out stronger after those elections. And I, I do think that this has happened. Can you tell me the, the sense of national confidence, which is confidence is a strange thing. Of course, it comes from economic decisions and how the country is doing. But the, the revival of Greek confidence in recent months has been extraordinary, even during what we're going through now with the pandemic. When you see the number of people in the diaspora wanting to come back to Greece, people wanting to invest here, are you surprised at the speed at which that's happened? This has been a very compact period. 2020 has been extremely challenging on various fronts, and I'm not just talking about the pandemic. We've also had real issues with Turkey, issues on the migration side. So it felt as if we were in a constant crisis management mode. But I think that Greek society really came together, especially during the first phase of the pandemic. There was a huge surge in national confidence, you know, a huge sense of pride that we managed to 
deal with this issue much more successfully than most um, other countries. Obviously, we have been challenged during the second phase. We haven't done as well, objectively, as we did in the first phase. But I think still, overall, for a country that came out of 10 years of economic hardship with a healthcare system that had come under a lot of strain, I think we've done overall remarkably well. And uh, for me, I'm a big believer in trust. Trust between people and the political elites had been shattered during the crisis. And we're building this, we're sort of rebuilding this trust step by step. I can tell you it's a very painful and long project because it only takes you know, one or two missteps to feel that you know, you're actually moving back. But I, I really think we are on the right direction. There's a general sense that Greece has turned the corner, a new sense of national confidence, very much exhibited in our diaspora. What I find fascinating is the number of people who have actually contacted me personally, you know, our team, you know, Greek businesses who actually express a real interest to return to Greece and return permanently. These are people, highly talented people, who left the country during the years of the crisis. And I think the reason they're returning, or they are contemplating to return, doesn't just have to do with the fact that they're offered more professional opportunities. I think it also has to do with a general sense that the country has turned the corner and is moving in the right direction. It's a long-term decision. I went through the same process, I remember, in 1997. You don't just come back for the job. You come back if you feel that the country is moving in the right direction. And there's also an intangible element which I would translate into meritocracy. That's the word that the Greeks use, axiokratia. It means that essentially you're going to be rewarded based on the effort you put into, into progressing in life. And there was always this sense in Greece that the system was rigged, you know, in favor of the insiders, and that you know, if you just happened to be an outsider, a talented outsider, you didn't have the same sort of chance to progress in life. Obviously, this hasn't changed completely, but I think we are moving in the right direction. Can we pull back for a moment just to look at the neighborhood, not where we're sitting today, but the broader neighborhood? You touched on Turkey a little bit earlier, of course, migration issues as well. What would be your assessment, your report card on this end of the Mediterranean today? It got a little bit spicy over the summer, as we noticed geopolitically. But how do you assess things now? And then maybe we can then talk about the opportunities after that. Spicy is a, <laughs> an interesting word uh, for describing what, what happened during the summer. It certainly got heated with Turkey. I think we have rediscovered the strategic importance of the Eastern Mediterranean. And I think this is important not just for Greece, Cyprus, it's also important for Europe. And I think we have been successful in making the case that our differences with Turkey also reverberate vis-a-vis the relationships of Europe and Turkey. And that is why I think Europe has taken the decision to impose additional measures on Turkey regarding its illegal drillings and its illegal hydrocarbon activities in the eastern Mediterranean. And there is a general sense that Turkey is behaving in a manner that is not conducive towards promoting peace and friendship in the region. Now, I do hope that this is going to change. And I've always extended a hand of friendship to Turkey. And I've always encouraged President Erdogan to sit down and discuss about the one main difference that we have, which is the delimitation of our maritime zones. It's a story that goes back decades. We can resolve it. We have resolved similar issues with Italy. We have resolved similar issues with Egypt. There's no reason why we can't resolve this with Turkey. And even if we cannot succeed in resolving the issue ourselves, we can always take it to the international court. That's why international courts exist. So it's a very fair and open offer. But of course, what cannot be accepted is why we talk to also 
tolerate sort of unilateral aggressive behavior at sea. So I think there are you know, broader alliances that have been formed in our part of the world. We have a strong alliance with Israel, a strong alliance with the United Arab Emirates, a strong alliance with Egypt. Obviously, you know, Cyprus, we've always been completely aligned in terms of our foreign policy. We do cooperate uh, when it comes to regional issues. There is the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, which is a forum of discussion and cooperation to promote hydrocarbon exploration in the Eastern Mediterranean. Turkey is not a member of the forum, not because we chose to exclude Turkey, but because of its behavior, it has almost excluded itself. So in a nutshell, a region that is becoming increasingly important for Europe, I think the US is going to be much more engaged under the new Biden administration in the region, which I think is a welcome development. And Greece, you know, a pillar of stability in an unstable region, member of the EU, member of NATO, a country that really can act as a pillar, not just of stability, but also of economic growth in our part of the world. As a, a, you know, a member of the EU you know, with a, a renewed presence and obviously a, a key member of NATO as well, but were you surprised that actually it did take some persuading to get the European partners on board to align with some sanctions against Turkey? And in a way, I know that you're not a populist, but in a way, did Trump do some good in the sense that he was pushing other countries to spend 2% of GDP on defence? And this is a, a really important thing if you're going to be protecting this end of the Med. I think NATO members need to stick to their commitment to spend 2% of their GDP on defence. We've been doing it for a long time, for obvious reasons. We live in an unstable neighbourhood. And it, yes, it did take some time to convince Europeans to realise that what is at stake is not just the expression of solidarity towards Greece, but also their own vital strategic interests in the Eastern Mediterranean. And again, I want to be very honest with you. Sanctions are never, they shouldn't be a goal in themselves. You know, the threat of sanctions is powerful, I think, in in deterring countries from behaving in a particular way. And I do hope that this is what will happen with Turkey. Some first steps have been taken. The US has taken our first measure of sanctions because Turkey purchased Russian anti-aircraft, very advanced Russian anti-aircraft missile systems. And I do hope that the threat of further sanctions is going to convince Turkey that the path it's moving down is at that end. And at the end, it's not also going to benefit the Turkish people. Prime Minister, do you feel that your diplomats in Brussels have to work harder or maybe in a way, I guess, to the other side, to your other EU friends? Does there have to be maybe a little bit more pressure to understand the frontline role that you're playing in the migration story here? If I'm an EU member state, do you think it's understood? Because, of course, many other countries will say, well, we bear the brunt of this also on our city streets, etc. Many will say, of course, we're taking people in. But obviously, it's a much more nuanced discussion when you're directly at the receiving end. So is there an understanding in Brussels about the severity and the brunt that you deal with in Greece? First of all, we received a lot of support in March when Turkey systematically tried to breach, literally breach our border and send tens of thousands of desperate people into Greece and into Europe. Erdogan threatened Europe with such a a sort of an organized activity. But we defended our border and 48 hours later, the leadership of the European Union showed up on the border with Turkey to express their solidarity. You know, President Michel, uh, Ursula von der Leyen and David Sassoli, they were all there to demonstrate their support towards Greece. But it's not just a question of support. I think some European states are conveniently hiding behind the fact that we have to do the difficult job of protecting the borders without expressing any real solidarity when it comes to dealing with with refugee flows, people who actually do make it into Greece. And we've made it very, very clear 
that we're changing our approach towards protecting our borders, which was not the case with the previous uh, government. But of course, people will end up arriving in Greece, and those who are entitled asylum will be granted asylum. And we're an open and welcoming country for those who flee persecution and war. And quite a few of them have actually made Greece their homeland, and we're happy and proud to have them. But of course, we do draw a line between refugees and, and economic migrants. At the same time, we ask for European solidarity. It is completely unacceptable that there are countries, especially some Eastern European countries, that are willing to contribute zero. And I'm not just talking about mandatory relocations. I'm talking about even supporting us in, for example, sending economic refugees back through organized return policies. So, as you know, the new migration pact is being discussed at the level of the European Union. We're hoping that, you know, under the German presidency there would be meaningful progress. Some progress has been made, but this is going to be handled by the Portuguese presidency. Now, it's just very difficult to explain to Greek people why there are some countries who want to do absolutely nothing in terms of a project that by nature needs a collective response. Looking at our issue, the rise of Greece as a soft power influencer, when we think of people around the world looking to Greece, what are some of the things that are part of that brand that are important as we explain the soft power of Greece? We had set the bar very high when we first came into office. And I've, I haven't been shy about my ambitions. I do want to transform the country into a country that is open, and competitive, plays a leading role in the region, and most of all, a country that embraces change and rises up to the challenges of a rapidly transforming world. And I think we have punched below our weight for quite some time. It's time to change that and punch above our weight. And COVID, with all its dramatic consequences, has offered us an additional tool which we did not have at our disposal. And I'm talking about money. I'm talking about 32 billion euros that constitute the allocation for Greece from the Recovery and Resilience Fund. We've always said that we want a growth that is investment-driven. We were not sure we could mobilize enough money from the private and the public sector. Now we have an additional pocket of money that is very, very significant that can help us drive through really transformative projects on the green side, on the, on the digital side, on the investment side. We want to focus on, on high-end manufacturing in Greece. This is not just a country that can offer exceptional services and COVID gives us this additional firepower. I think COVID has also, is also helping us to reimagine the post-COVID world, and we try to make sure that we will be in the winner's column, because I think there will be winners and losers post-COVID. I think one advantage that Greece has to offer in the post-COVID world is the fact that this is a beautiful country, and COVID has demonstrated that you can work from anywhere. And you've also seen that, you know, during lockdown, a lot of people actually moved to Greece. They considered Greece to be safe. So this is a country that is safe, well-connected, very well-positioned, four hours flight from London, but also four hours flight from Abu Dhabi, extremely well-positioned geographically. So why not consider Greece a country out of which you can actually work, not just spend your holidays, but permanently move to Greece? We've offered very, I think, attractive tax incentives for people who actually want to move their tax residence to Greece. I mean, they will be paying only 50% income tax for the next five years. So we don't just want to bring the diaspora back. We want to bring people like you back, like you're not, I wouldn't say back, but back as residents to purchase property in Greece. So the people who read your, your magazine, who by nature are very international, should really consider that this is a country that has profoundly changed. The perception is different, and that was, I was so thrilled when I saw your survey and your acknowledgement that this transformation is really happening very, very rapidly. 
And for us, this is a huge opportunity. For example, we were one of the first countries to auction off our 5G spectrum. We also set aside 25% of the proceeds and put them in a fund that will support startups that are active in the 5G ecosystem. So on top of everything that's happening in Greece, you also have a booming startup ecosystem. You have tech companies. Greece is suddenly becoming a tech hub. You have Microsoft announcing a huge investment in data centers. A lot of people noticed because when Microsoft decides to invest in a country, they've done their due diligence. I think Greece has huge potential to become a center for healthcare, but also for next generation biopharma. If you just look at the landscape of the people who are active in the U.S., biotech and big pharma industry, you'll find so many Greeks. The CEO of Pfizer is Greek. Regeneron is essentially a Greek-run company. So I set together you know, a group where we brought all the, the leading brains, Greek or Greek-related, of the global biotech industry and asked them what it is that we can do to start building, having you know, manufacturing capacity in Greece, do more clinical trials in Greece. And of course, also offer you know, high-quality healthcare you know, services at an affordable price for the entire region. You know, why should they go to London or the U.S. when they can get similar healthcare for a fraction of the price in Greece? As you said, there are all of these things available. And what business would you like to start? Let's just play a game. Do you want to manufacture something? What would you like to do? And I'd like to know, what can the prime minister, what if you went to the embassy, what would be on offer in terms of tax breaks, incentives, and also maybe what type of sectors? But what are you going to make, Andrew? Well, anybody who's doing high-end manufacturing, as you said, what would be the advantages of being based in Greece rather than going to any of your neighbours? I'll give you a real example. We just signed a letter of of intent with a German startup that is actually manufacturing small, relatively affordable electric cars called Ego. And we were never part of the manufacturing, the automotive manufacturing cluster. But they looked at Greece and said, look, there is an interesting regional market. You can service, you know, the Balkans, the Middle East out of Greece. You have a much more friendly regulatory environment. You have significant tax breaks for depreciation, for R&D investment. But you also have something which not many people realize, a highly talented labor force, that you can still hire at competitive rates. So if you look at how much it costs you to hire an engineer in Greece, it's still cheaper than most European countries. And these are fantastically talented people. So when you talk, for example, to the CEO of Pfizer, Pfizer set up you know, a big data analytics center in Thessaloniki, the one thing he'll tell you is that he's thrilled with the quality of the people. And actually, one out of four people who apply for a job now because they're planning to expand their capacity are people who apply from abroad. It's much easier if you live abroad to return and work for a multinational company than it is to work maybe for a Greek company. So if you add to all of that the quality of life in in Greece, the fact that this is a connected country, it's becoming a logistics center, and you have a very good infrastructure, physical, but also digital infrastructure, the question would be, why not consider Greece? So a lot of the work that we do is just to place Greece on the map, because many people thought of Greece strictly as a country where you would want to come to open a nice hotel. And we're big on tourism, don't get me wrong. I think sustainable tourism is a huge theme, but I like to look at tourism not just as a standalone sector. Tourism has to go hand in hand with sustainability, has to go hand in hand with culture, has to go hand in hand maybe with, with education, and has to be a tourism that is not just limited to the summer months. It has to be sustainable. There are islands that have clearly reached their capacity in terms of how many people they can accommodate, especially during the peak summer months. And there are other places where the sky is the limit. But we need to, in terms of uh, thinking about in our spatial planning, what it is we do, how we build, these are absolutely critical aspects. Part of your recovery plan is obviously around 
sustainability in every country is looking at you know, what it does and it is speeding up its progress. One of the big things you've talked about is moving to renewable energy, to solar and wind power at a very fast pace. And already this country has an extraordinary record on wind power, often going ahead of other nations you think might be pioneers in this field. Do you think that also begins to bring people back in as investors and as diaspora returning, if they see you as a, a technology player in government as well? Well, first of all, on, on renewables, yes, we have a natural advantage. It's just more efficient to build a PV, uh, you know, solar plant in Greece than it is to build it in Germany. And we also have lots of wind. And frankly, we have more interest than we can accommodate right now, because there's always a natural boundary to how many renewables you can add to the grid. But we've taken the very bold decision of shutting down all our lignite plants. By 2023, all but one, and by 2028, the last one, which is the most modern one, will also stop burning, you know, the most polluting type of fossil fuels. So this has forced us to adjust. And it has also sent a very clear signal to the market that we're serious and we, we mean business. But on the other aspect of your question, the digital transformation of the state is of paramount importance to me. This has been accelerated by COVID. Our national site called gov.gr has more than 700 online services. And we managed to move very, very quickly to make the life of businesses and citizens so much easier by offering digital services. It's been a huge success. I think we probably receive our highest ratings by the public when we ask them, where have we done the best job? Digital transformation constantly pops up as number one. And in that respect, COVID has been uh, an opportunity. And the recovery fund, you know, green and digital are the two big buckets where we need to make sure that we submit projects that can be financed by the European Union. And we have already submitted our plan. It has been extremely well received in Brussels. So I'm confident that we have the plan and the capacity to execute it. Let's touch on national brand for a moment. There's a domestic internal side to it and there's an external side. And there's a couple of parts to this question. How much of a, of a polishing or a refinishing does the national brand need to go through internally? And then if I think about Greece, and if I think about made in Greece, of course, many leaders, private, public sector will talk about pharma, and they'll talk about digital transformation, etc. But some of the countries that do very well in our ranking, there is also that, that real component, I could be living in Australia, or I can be living in Thailand, and I'm still touched by Greece, because there's a bottle of wine on the table, or maybe I actually pick up a garment that is made in Greece. So First side, you know, what is being done sort of domestically, because you've got to get that right to make it happen internationally. And I guess what I'm asking as well, because Andrew was talking about maybe, I don't think Andrew's going to do a car startup for you. <laughs> I think Andrew might want to do some jumpers or blankets or something like that. But you know, is there also room for made in Greece in a real tangible sense that it's going to touch people around the world as well? Well, we are in the process of developing a very ambitious rebranding strategy for the country, which will go in line with what I was talking about where I want to take, where we want to take the country. And of course, this needs to be reflected in our brand, in the aesthetics, but also in the messaging and in the stories that we tell, because well, maybe it's just a brand is an aggregation of the sort of surprising stories that emerge out of Greece that many people would not necessarily anticipate coming from a country such as Greece. You know, we focus a lot on our glorious past and certainly we have a lot to talk about on that front, but there's a very promising future ahead of us. And that's the sort of path that we need to charter. But you spoke about a bottle of wine. We have fantastic agricultural products. The one thing that distinguishes Greece should always be quality. And the fact that every product can tell a local story. 
So if you just look at the progress that our agricultural products have made, we're never going to be a mass producer. Maybe we can be a mass producer in olive oil, but even there we can do more to brand and to make sure that we capture a bigger chunk of the value added. You know that sort of remarkable that the biggest chunk of our olive oil is actually exported in bulk to Italy and then rebranded or you know mixed with Italian oil. And I want to change that. We need to be able to capture the value of the Greek products. And it is already beginning to happen. If you look at the wine industry, it is really booming. And we have exceptional wines that receive um, raving reviews and new, completely new varieties. And I don't want to compete with the French on Cabernet Sauvignon. No. But I want to focus on Cinomavro or Mavro Tragano, which are probably varieties you never heard of. But people who have it are absolutely thrilled because they are Greek and they're very original and they tell a story. And if you combine it with uh, you know, travel off the beaten track, then you, you can really tell a very compelling story. For example, Santorini is known for its uh, beautiful sunset, but it also produces exceptional wines. You'll be happy to hear that on the way here, we stopped at Oak Cellars um, <laughs> and filled up the back of the car with nice wines from Santorini. Good. Well, so. well I, can, I, can, you know, I can make some suggestions, but also there's also another aspect which of course, I'm slightly biased because this has also has to do with uh, what my wife at least is or was doing professionally, and that has to do with craftsmanship. There's a, a great tradition of craftsmanship. There's so many examples of products that tell fascinating stories, and at a time when I think people will be looking for something different, something more local, that's also an aspect, be it you know, Greek uh, silk or Greek shoes, uh, Greek sandals. Uh, a lot of our companies are beginning to expand into markets beyond the Greek market. And of course, we have the additional advantage of having, in a normal year, more than 30 million people who visit Greece. So we want them to, to leave with memories, but also, hopefully, not necessarily buy products, but when they're home, to buy you know, products that remind them of their time in Greece until they come back. We've talked about lots of positive things. For you, what are the sticky bits? Which are the bits that are difficult to get Greek people involved in this notion of renewal and of a, a new national brand? Is there a sense, you said earlier on, that people sometimes feel that they can't really kind of access the wealth and the, the opportunities here? Is it confidence, again, that you know, you've got a great Greek wine, do export it, do go out to market? What are the bits that when you're talking to you know, fellow Greeks and fellow Greek business leaders that they still find a little bit of a, a pause before they take that next leap? Well, this is a change management project at the grand scale, at the country scale. So it's not easy, I can tell you. And there are obstacles. Every day we, you know, we bump into obstacles. But I think there's a real desire, fundamental desire, from the majority of Greeks to change. And you know those, this buzzword? Everyone talks about resilience. Well, we can show the world something about resilience. You know, we went through 10 years of extremely difficult period. Our democracy is stronger now. And our economy, I think, is going to come out stronger as a result of this crisis. So this is a story of renewal. But of course, there are sticking points, difficult nuts to crack. Education is a long-term project. Reform of the justice system is a long-term project, so not everything can be resolved with you know, a piece of legislation. But uh, we're fully aware of the fact that we essentially spent a year where we had to deal with crisis management while making sure we keep the reform momentum alive and kicking because we want to make sure that once COVID is over, the foundations will be there to build back better, or I like this sort of um, phrase, or build something, maybe not build back better, but build something new in a better way, because we know we cannot go back to the old ways. 
This cannot be an economy that's focused on borrowing and consumption. And of course we've, we've borrowed now, but every European country has borrowed, but we want to spend the money wisely. And what's interesting is that the market is giving us beyond the benefit of the doubt. We're borrowing at record low interest rates, and people are confident that this government is serious, and that it will maintain once COVID is over, it will return to you know, basic rules of fiscal discipline in the post-COVID world, which is going to be different. And I do expect fiscal rules to be more relaxed for quite some time, and that's the way it should be. Let's end on a sunny note. We look forward to coming quarters. If you think about big initiatives, and I was in Athens when the Microsoft deal was announced, and you, you saw the excitement in the press, and maybe there wasn't sort of the level of skepticism. You find this was a big moment. And without giving away maybe too many state secrets, big initiatives that are on the horizon right now, reasons to believe when you look across 21, 22. And of course, these can be big infrastructure as much as they could be launching a new national brand. But when you look across the horizon for this country, what excites you right now? Well, I'm excited about launching our national brand because it's going to be taking place in 2021, which is an emblematic year for Greece. We're celebrating 200 years since the beginning of our war of independence. A good opportunity to take stock of what we have achieved. Greece was essentially a part of the, you know, of the Ottoman Empire at the time. And I'd say compared to all other countries in the region overall, you know, with lots of bumps down the road, we've probably done better than most, if not all. But it's been a very bumpy ride. And the story of Greece has always been a story of you know, triumphs followed by catastrophes. But the trajectory has been the correct one. We were always on the right side of history when it came to making the big choices in our history. So it's a good opportunity to look back, learn from our mistakes, but also draw strength from the things that we've done well and chart our course for the next decade. And a lot of the work that I described, I think, they add up to what I hope is going to be you know, a transformation of the country. And it's never, there is no silver bullet, but suddenly you realize that it's like a puzzle. You start putting pieces in place. At the beginning, it doesn't make much sense. And suddenly you realize what this is all about. That's the way I feel about this project. But, you know, I always draw energy from the fact that this country, I really sense it wants to change. There were times when we thought, I mean, we, we just cannot do this. We suffered from so many stereotypes, especially during the crisis. It really frustrated me and made me quite angry. And this is not true. I mean, we are very talented, resourceful people. So essentially, 2021 was all about freedom, fighting for our freedom. This is about freedom of the ordinary Greek to reach the limits of their capacity. This is what I think this is all about at the end of the day. My thanks to Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis for joining us for this week's special episode of The Chiefs. If you'd like to listen back or subscribe ahead of the coming season, where we'll be hearing from more great leaders about how they're pushing ahead, head to monocle.com forward slash radio. This episode of The Chiefs was produced and researched by Paige Reynolds and Daphne Carnesis and edited by Jack Dewars and David Stevens. I'm Tyler Brule. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon. <laughs>